0: Smoothie King asks, what's that sound? Uh, That's the sound of hearts popping out of your eyes when you see Smoothie King's all-new Smoothie Bowls. These power-packed beauties are just waiting to be spooned. Our Smoothie Bowls start with acai or pitaya and are handcrafted with fresh toppings like sliced bananas, sweet berries, bright mangoes, crunchy purely Elizabeth granola, and a savory peanut butter drizzle. Mmm, That's the sound of a Smoothie Bowl being made fresh just for you. The new Smoothie Bowls menu, only at Smoothie King.
1: Welcome everybody to this patron-only episode of the Nessun Dorma podcast, your chat about 80s and 90s football, although we will be going outside that uh, catchment time in this episode for reasons that become clear, because we'll be having a chat about the great cultural force in all our lives that still resonates to this day, Elton Welsby. No, I'm <laughs> jesting, of course. We're actually talking about a 101 Great Goals video of all of our earlier days. I don't want to rub it in, Gary, but I suppose for me and Mike, it's of our youth, but it's not so much your youth then, was it?
2: Oh, no, no. Um, well, some of it is because uh, we're going to talk about a goal um, that was scored when I was like, I think, 12 years old, but I remember watching it on Match of the Day. Um, my parents were never keen on us going to bed, so we were we were often kept <laughs> up for things like Match of the Day, and sports night, moon landings, uh, big fights. And um, and Psycho, my mother was very keen that we saw Psycho at a very young age. Alfred <laughs> Hitchcock imprinted. All of this is true. Uh, she worked in the cinema. Everything's so
1: much clearer now, Gary. <laughs> <laughs>
2: she she worked in the cinema. She had very much her own approach to. Um, to the uh, BBFC, the British Board of Film Censoring. Um, and, and some some things were, were a bit off-limits. She didn't like us going to see kind of Charles Bronson. But pretty much anything else was anything goes from any age, and, and that included uh, Hitchcock movies. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, we were kept up, and I remember watching one of the goals, which we'll come to later, uh, on Match of the Day, as live as live got.
1: Okay, so I'm Lee. Hello, everybody, and joining me to pour over this <laughs> chat about the about the video, and also to pick a couple of goals each, as Gary's already mentioned too. Is obviously we 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 all know each other now, but Mike's here. Hello, Mike. Hi, guys. And Gary's here, as you've already heard.
2: Yes, hello. It's lovely to be back.
1: Uh, just to pick up uh, some admin on the pod stuff, just so you all know, you lovely patrons out there. Thanks for your support, and this is our fourth season of the podcast, amazingly. Uh, But following the outstanding 1993-94 episode that came out this week, this week as we're recording this, recently in in May anyway, uh, this will be, and this episode for patrons, this will kind of be, after this, us taking a break for the summer, after the end, so the end of season four, effectively. Because I suppose we've got the Euros, we've got the chance to go outside again, all things like that, that we'd like to spend some time doing. Um, So that's the kind of plan. There might be... Uh, there probably will be a couple of, ep- of episodes of the extra time dropping with a few interviews we've got lined up, but there won't be any kind of main episodes uh, for the summer period. Just so you all know, as patrons, we will be turning off the Patreon charging during this period, so you won't be charged, so don't worry about that. Thank you very much for your support, and when we come back again, and I think we will be coming back again, won't we, fellas? We oh, We
2: just need yes. a bit of a break. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I- I'm going to see Abermania on Friday night. Um, I I'll be quick to tell you that that's a, a, a review ticket because it costs 50 quid to see Abermania. That sounds Shotsbury like the worst Abermania. kind of mania. Yeah. Well, it, it, it might be, it might be. Um, but that's the kind of thing we'll be doing, or I'll be doing instead of uh, Ness and Dorma during our release into the uh, wild.
0: I will be. They've not they've not um, lowered the prices to entice people back in, then, I'll take you. They're charging 50 quid for Abermania.
1: They'll have to double the prices because of the spacing, will I they? think
2: I think there might be yeah. a bit of that going on i'm a bit worried about people singing dancing queen at the tops of their voices because i think there's some significant evidence that if you're indoors and belting out dancing queen you're likely to have <laughs> something of a spreader but um gotta do it now
1: i'll be uh in my with my other hat on in my rugby hat on i'll be covering probably a lot of the lions tour for the guardian as well as doing other things so that's why we're a bit short on headspace and literal time space i think aren't we all of us so we need, to, we need to just recharge and come back, raring to go uh, probably September, we think. But let's, let's, let's see how we get on. All right. So let's talk about 101 Great Goals then, <laughs> shall we? The video. Uh, Mike, I think you more than any of us can, can do a good job <laughs> of telling us exactly what this video is all about, given you've watched it approximately an incalculable number of times.
0: Oh, you throw me right under a bus at the start there. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things I wouldn't ever want to see cumulatively, I think. Uh, one would be the amount of money I've put into pool tables. And, you know, ac- across a bar to pay for drinks uh, would be another. And the amount of times that I've watched this video uh, as a cumulative total of hours would, would be qu- would be quite frightening, I think um so yeah 101 great goals this was released in october of 1987 by the bbc and if there is anyone out there in the patreon there might be a few i don't know but um, who don't know what this is it's a well it does exactly what it says on the tin 101 great goals i mean i think we'll debate the, the greatness of some <laughs> of them as we get into it but uh it covers a kind of halcyon era of uh English football really popularised by Match of the Day and Sports Night from 1969 to 1987. And it's a collection of goals from that period, from those programs. Uh yeah, in the in the in the technical era. And it's just, I mean, I, I know lots of people who work in football writing. This is a like a really obvious reference point for anyone roughly about our age, I think. I mean, mm. I would have been 10 years old when I got this for, I'm sure, for Christmas uh, in 1987. We'd only had the video recorder in our house for one year then, because we got it for the the 86 World Cup. Um, so, so with no other videos in the house to watch. Yeah, I just watched this over and over and over and got obsessed with it. And it's uh, so it's a collection of goals from the Football League, the FA Cup, the League Cup, uh, various England internationals, all drawn from this huge archive that the BBC has just been sitting on for decades. This huge cultural resource that you know is now creeping out onto you know YouTube and onto the iPlayer and things like that. Uh, so there's nothing from World Cups or European Championships because I don't think the BBC would have had the rights to show any of that stuff on mm. this tape. But all of the titans of the BBC commentary era are there, you know, Wollstoneholm, Coleman, Davis, Motson, um, Alan Weeks, Alan Weeks, yeah. (laughs) You know, because of the selection and the time period, it's a very British and Irish tape. you know. There are goals, and we'll come to discuss one by Johnny Method later on, but there's goals on there, you know, from Ricky Villa and Jesper Olsen and Nico Klassen, but yeah, it's mostly all of the players that built the legend of, you know, football through match of the day and sports night in England you know, through the 70s and most of the 80s here. So, you know, you've got George Best in his sideburn shirt hanging out, Pomp, Greaves, Keegan, Dalgleish, Robson, Lineker. Um, both Robsons. Both Robsons, yeah. Two. Who knew there were two Brian Robsons until they <laughs> saw this? Um, and it's, yeah, with 101 goals to play with, that's a lot to pick. It's quite an eclectic selection, as I think we will... We'll get to. I'd have loved to have been in the room when this was uh when this was thrashed out. Uh but it goes chronologically, it runs from nineteen sixty-nine through to uh nineteen eighty seven, it ends on Clive Allen's nineteen eighty-seven FA Cup final goal. And strangely, I assume the director was a uh, an Arsenal fan. It starts with a Liam Brady goal from nineteen seventy-eight in a North London derby, which is uh which is a bit strange, but um, yeah, I'll go on about the sort of social, cultural aspect of it a little bit more later, but yeah, what are your guys' memories of this?
1: Just before we get onto that, I think there's an interesting, that point you make about YouTube, Mike's an interesting one, because of course, back then there was no YouTube, and the was just there was no YouTube, there was no other way of accessing anything, was there? So a goal was always, I mean, I, I was two, 11 when this came out, I'll talk about my experience of a it a bit more, but that point about it being a reference point is so obvious because it was all we had in many ways before you got the kind of ridiculous Danny Baker's right hammerings and own goals and gaffes mm. and all that stuff. That's all you had. So, really, the, you know, it's hard to, you can't work out whether these were all truly legendary goals or just they became legendary goals because that's all we had access to. And, and, and Gary, will, I'll let you come in here, Gary, because obviously you were older than us when this came out. Was it a mm. big deal? Did you buy it and all that stuff?
2: No, I didn't buy it. It's, uh... Um, Partly because, you know, I I spent a lot of the 90s in the pub and I've never really had a penchant for um, compilation videos and stuff like that. I did buy Danny Baker's own goals and gaffes, but that was my usual technique of buying Christmas presents for my brothers, which was simply to buy something I wanted in the knowledge that they probably wanted it too. And I remember us, um, sort of, after a, a Christmas dinner, putting it on and, and rather enjoying it uh, there, a little woozy after the uh, the red wine and sherry. But um, I, uh, I I I'd kind of come across all of these goals in, in one place or another. Um, part of my reluctance uh, to to do such things, of course, is that I could never make um, could never make videos work myself. And until my kids reached the age of about three, I couldn't make a DVD work. And when they got to sort of thirty six months of age, they could do it, and I just asked them to put the DVDs <laughs> on. Um, so my technophobia got in the way of it. Um, but you know, I, I I occasionally find myself down a, a YouTube wormhole. Um, but I have a, I have one particular point that I'd like to make, and you've alluded to an element of it already, Lee, which is that... I, I, forgive me, Ness and Dormers, if I've said this before, because as I'm saying it, I'm thinking I have. Mm. Is that I think everything in the BBC archive should be on the iPlayer. We've paid for it once, and absolutely everything should be open to us. It would be a vast cultural resource. It would take some um, curating and... You know, there'd have to be different ways of being able to search it, and uh, there'd have to be ways of presenting, you know, all the goals, or you'd be able to look at, you know, sort of all of the to- Tottenham Hotspur matches that have ever been on Match of the Day and stuff like this. But the entire archive of the BBC should be on the iPlayer. Why do we? Why do we have to wait until it comes on Dave or something like this? <laughs> we have paid for it once, and. You know, I, I, it doesn't take much for me to get antipathetic to the BBC for all of its um, heritage, and we're looking at some of the the best of it now. But um, that they're still they're still feeding us these little snippets of of sport that we we'll somehow bow down and be grateful for. But I'll tell you what, if you want to have a look at Andy Murray being clapped by his uh, his wife from the uh, from the players' box at Wimbledon, it won't take you long to find that, I'm sure. But um, goals from George Best in his pump? Not sure we'll let you see those. Not me.
1: I actually know somebody who works in the BBC Archive in Salford, so maybe I can raise it with him.
2: Just a whole lot <laughs> should... Absolutely a yeah.
0: whole bloody lot should be an AI player. Yeah. I'd love that conversation. Yeah, have you got any free time? Could you put the entire, <laughs> put <laughs> yeah. the entire BBC what Archive?
1: Do what do you mean 500,000 servers? <laughs> yeah. No.
2: Uh, yeah, so well, even I mean, I, I, it's, it would be a project. It would be a ten-year project, <laughs> but there's there's money for these things. This is what the national lottery is for. Putting together these sporting and cultural things that are to do with participation, but they're all to, also to do with with valuing our heritage. And you know, th- th- if they can find money to stick a bloody flag outside every school, they can find money to f- put all George Best Skulls on the iPlayer for God's sake. Which is that. more important. I love that.
1: Yeah, I love that as We're gonna put every if they did agree to put the whole archive out, could you put all the goals for match of the day out first, please? That's the first yeah. priority.
2: <laughs> no the, the first the first priority is actually the test matches of the nineteen seventies. But the <laughs> no, second no, 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 no. one the second one <laughs> uh, I think right. there's
0: probably there's probably a bit of a wider point about um I don't know. Just football being valued as culture in there, I think. I don't think this just applies to the BBC either. I mean, look how long it took football to get a museum, a national museum, or you know, a hall of fame. You know, these things they do so well in America. You know, celebrating the you know the cultural history of all the 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 sports they have there. It took England and the UK sort of ages to get on board with that. I mean. Right to the end of the late 90s, I think. And, and the, I think I think the National Football Museum was only this this century, wasn't it? Um, and it, tell, it tells you a lot about arts funding in the UK, I think, and who's got the hands on the purse strings for this kind of stuff. Um, it, did ta- it did take that long to, to come about.
1: There's a brilliant episode of Yes well, Minister where Jim Hacker tries to divert money from a museum to keep the local football club going. And so Humphrey obviously is not very happy about that at all. <laughs> yeah. But it, it, it plays exactly into exactly what you were just saying, uh, Mike, around mm, but, what you value as culture, why, you know, why is opera hev- heavily subsidized but the Rolling Stones aren't, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, I, I rather like the fact that opera is heavily subsidized. <laughs> so I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll stay off that. One. But um it, what I would suggest is something like, you know, the PFA buying Lowry paintings for a, a million pounds, and I know some of it was to avoid tax and stuff like like this and and Cultural artifacts are quite good for that. So um, I know there's more to it than that. But why are they buying Lowry paintings of people going to the match instead of, instead of putting together what they were actually seeing when they went to the <laughs> match? You know, it, it's, to, to me... I mean, there has been a kind of increase in in statues and stuff like that. You know, sort of, uh, I think the first one was at Fulham and it was Michael Jackson. But um, it's got a lot better than that. And some of them are a bit cheesy. But I tell you, you know, Liverpool obviously are not my club. But if I walked past that uh, statue of Bob Paisley carrying Emlyn Hughes off the field, I'd have a tear in my eye, I promise you. Um, So if they get them right... Uh, they're, they're really good, but I, I don't want to see any more sort of knee slides to the corner flag um, uh, captured in uh, marble. Uh, I think they need to be more imaginative. But the best of them, I think, is is Paisley carrying Emlyn Hughes, uh, which is outside Anfield. And that's a, a great example of, of art and sport coming together in a public space, um, telling a story and football culture. It needs the imagination to 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 do that, but when it works, it's it's fantastic. So, September, September, it's, sorry, on,
0: September '98, the National Football Museum, off the back wow. of a Heritage Lottery Fund. What's that? Roughly 120
1: exactly. years after the FA was created. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, 1963. So yeah, and like you said, probably
1: the big one of the biggest cultural phenomenons that England, stroke Britain has given the world, basically.
2: Couldn't agree more.
0: Um, right, this is, this is turning into a rally now isn't it, isn't it? Get it. Tell you what. <laughs>
1: speaking of sporting culture Edmund Hughes spoke at our end of season sports dinner at University of Teesside in the mid 90s and was rolled off before he got to the end of his <laughs> after dinner speech <laughs>
2: Yeah. <laughs> with the local dogs uh, yowling at the uh, at the sound, he
1: opened his he, he's opening to tell us all not to take drugs. We didn't go down very well with a load of twenty one year old drugs people at university, <laughs> no, so no, we no. all just got a bit fed up with his moralising. Really, another fact about Emily Hughes that people don't know and says something about him. I think. Well, you may know he had a boy and a girl children. Yes, do, do you know this? Do you know what yeah. they're called? I I I, I go
2: think What's on. called. Emily. Yeah. I, and the daughter. Emelina or something.
0: Emma Lynn. <laughs> em- <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, that's I mean, like George, George Foreman's got, I think, five sons called George and a daughter called Georgina or, so, or something
1: like <laughs> <something laughs> that. You kind of forgive it with George Foreman because he's, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be a breathtaking arrogance to it like there does with I Emily mean, <laughs> <No>, somehow.
2: <laughs> George Foreman's rationale. Uh, for having five sons all called George Foreman, is that wherever they were in the world, they would never be far from a George Foreman. (laughs) You know, (laughs) kind of has a a certain logic to it, but uh, nothing tops Nigel Lawson's daughter, Nigella, surely. indeed.
1: But to go back to, I think, about half an hour ago, somebody asked a question about memories of this uh, video. But um, I think it was you, Mike. I... um, I'll give you the very short version of this. Basically, my nan and granddad live in North Wales because my granddad transferred with the pit in the early seventies, and my mum moved down there. She's the eldest kid, met my me dad in North Wales when she was seventeen. She got married; they got married when she was seventeen. Moved back to Lancashire, and then by nineteen eighty seven, the marriage wasn't doing too well. So basically, they split up. So I had to move from Lee in Lancashire with my mum to go and live in me nan's house, and this happened in October nineteen eighty seven. So we're living, waiting for a council house and I'm sharing a bed with my mum as an 11-year-old in my nan's house. And still at home is my mum's youngest sibling who's the only brother, our, our Keith, as he's known. He's still more, he's still a minor at that point, he's not now. Um, and he was still at home, he's nine years my senior. And I kind of got a big... Bro- I was, I'm an only child, so I got a big brother that I never had before, really. I used to drive him mad at Nicky's clothes and everything. But he bought this video... Uh, at some point in eighty seven, eighty eight, and we wore the hell out of it watching it. Hmm. And all of my memories, and honestly, the the, the the commentaries and everything, just take me back to that first six months, new school, moving fifty miles where I didn't want to. The reason why I've I've never lost my Lancashire accent is I made a very deliberate choice at eleven that I didn't want to fucking move here anyway. So I'm not losing <laughs> my accent. I actually I'm very fond of North Wales now. I still live there. But that was a kind of so it's really weird. It was only watching it again that all these kind of weird emotional memories came flooding back of a very strange, well, not strange, difficult time in my life, I suppose. And yet, this video brings me nothing but joy when I think about it. And 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 our Keith is no longer of mine. He's a professor of professor of history now, so he did all right. He also ruined my but, but, plan of being the first person to go to uni in the family because he went via night school before I got there.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. So Imagine yes. being. Imagine being held your whole life for decisions you made at seventeen, or for that matter fifty seven but I mean <laughs> <laughs> it is incredible, isn't it? Some of the things that Because that, a lot of my cousins were married at sixteen and seventeen, stuff like this, so you know it wasn't it wasn't unusual up north was it um well, my dad was going strong. to Hong Kong
1: with the army, so they couldn't possibly be without each other, so they decided to get married so one could go to Hong Kong with him. I was made in Hong Kong, true fact, everybody. Um, anyway, sorry, I'd segued there, but I think it was uh, just worthwhile mentioning how important this kind of video is to me, really. Um, right, shall we start talking about some goals then? Before we get on to our sort of goals, do we want to talk about your point earlier, Mike? You know, how great are the, what proportion of the 101 would still be considered great, I suppose, is the first question, Mike? You yeah, well, you'd have to give me a total. I don't mean give me a specific figure, but you know.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, selecting means eliminating, doesn't it? So, I mean, there's obviously going to be things you you disagree with. That's like when you see a poll of 100 greatest albums. Yes. Go, oh, what the hell is that doing in there? <laughs> um, so, but yeah, you know, with that caveat, <laughs> there's just some really strange selections in it. But obviously, one thing they've tried to do is get all the great players from the era with a goal in glorious Technicolor. Now there's a Jimmy Greaves goal in here and I love Jimmy Greaves, but a lot of his best work was done in black and white. And, but even, even that said, since I've grown up, you know, I've seen other Jimmy Greaves goals that are in color that are better than the one that's on this tape. So the one on here is it's a long throw from Joe Kinnear, which is flicked on, deflects off a defender's shins. And then Greaves, he, he doesn't even catch it cleanly, he slices it into the net. And I think it's Alan Weeks, it's Greaves, it's in the goal. <laughs> and that, and that is it. And in a move that feels laced with symbolism, as the ball goes in, someone throws a bog roll onto the pitch, which I think is kind of, you know, some kind of uh, postmodern ironic commentary on its uh, on its place in 101 um, <laughs> Great goals. It's absolutely bizarre. And there's another one by Rodney Marsh that's just, I don't, all right, yeah, you have to get Rodney Marsh on there. I get that. But it's just a tapping. Sort of, you must have been able to find a better Rodney Marsh goal. You wonder how quickly this was put together, really. There's the Joe you know, Royal
1: one for England where Colin Bell hits a cross on the left, along the floor from the left, and it only gets mm-hmm. to Joe Royal because about three defenders spanner it. And then he just booms it in from eight yards out off the crossbar. And it's just, yeah, same with you. It's like, I'm sure there's... I know it it wasn't a great time for England in the 70s, but surely Mm. there were better goals than that. Uh,
2: I I was wondering when you said that... um... Jimmy Greaves' best work was done in black and white. I was wondering if you are going to say Jimmy Greaves' best work was done as a spitting image puppet. But uh, <laughs> I think that, would be, that would be somewhat unfair, even though he was mm. a very, very good spitting image puppet. I, I'm just going to caveat that, if I can make a verb of what I'm sure is a, a Latin noun or whatever. Um, because... I think, and we'll probably come to this one, so I, I won't uh, overburden the point. Oh, yeah, yeah, that would be a new first. would wouldn't it? Uh, so I, I won't overburden this point, but we have to look at these goals in the context of them playing on, essentially, cabbage patches uh, inward with um, Billy's boots at the end of their legs uh, there, with a ball that probably weighs double what they, they do now, Uh, with a centre-half kicking your ankles sort of non-stop and a referee saying, you know, so you really should think about stopping that sort of thing because the centre-forward is really struggling to play when you're (laughs) kicking him. I may have to get my book out late in the second half if this continues every minute for the next 80. And um, so the game was so different then. And I think some of the, the... the s- the skills that we see and the goals that we see look a bit sort of Hackney Marshes, and some of them are a bit Hackney Marshes, um, but they were playing on Hackney Marshes more or less, even <laughs> though it had um, stands all the way around. So I'll just provide that little caveat.
1: Having said that, I mean there uh, are some bone the bona fide classics are in here, aren't they? You know, Tony yeah. Morley versus Everton, Regis versus Norwich, uh, Justin who's goal, left foot on the turn. Graham Sharp's goal at
2: Anfield,
1: and of course, Ronnie arms Rad- in the
2: air, arms <laughs> in the air, and run around like Ronnie Radford.
1: And Ronnie Radford, honestly, I was just about to come to that. I mean, <laughs> it cannot be. I mean, we're not gonna, I'm not going to. I'm going to mention it just because it can't be overstated. Just what an incredible goal that is.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, and I think oh. we talk about great goals a lot of the time about their context, don't we? And that sealed one of the great cup upsets or oh, was the equalizer wasn't it, it was the goal after but you know it's part of one of the great fa cup upsets of all time it launched the commentary career of yeah. john Mottson, essentially but more than that i think and this is why this tape is such like it's so rich in sort of social and cultural history it's a real time capsule it's it's like a cross section of the 70s this goal you've got the, like the gray kind of foreboding skies it's an absolute pudding of a pitch so it's really heavy going it looks like really hard work playing out there and when the goal goes in and every single kid is wearing the same jacket the same parka coat (laughs) (laughs) basically it's (laughs) glorious and similarly with with um sharps goal at anfield i mean that was a goal that rattled the axis of english football you know when they beat liverpool that day but you can see in the fact there's so many fans run on the pitch for goals on this tape but the fans that run on there, you know, they've got those kind of drainpipe denim jeans. You've got the NHS specs, the standard issue. And you, just, you could see that sheer joyful release that football was for working people in that kind of era. But yeah, particularly in that city as well. I think So it is like, it is like a little social document. The
1: whole thing. I literally wrote down a similar note, Mike, about how pitch invasions are brilliant because they give you a perfect vignette of what life was like then. And the Radford one's great for that. There's, uh, when Neil Redfern scores the penalty to get Oldham promoted, uh, there's a brilliant one. Everyone invades the pitch then, and they're all in shell suits because it's 1991, you know, 92. <laughs> so, and it's like, again get a perfect encapsulation of what it is to be working class in Oldham in 1992. Yeah. runs onto the pitch. Likewise with this uh, Radford goal. I still and don't understand can, how he hit it that hard. It still defies belief to me how you hit the ball that hard in that, on that pitch
0: at that level of football. Incredible. It's a screamer, isn't it? And this actually, the, do you know there's another angle on that goal as well? It's no, from I've never the other side it, of is. the pitch. Oh, it's um Adam Hurry, who's been on this podcast a few times. He he tweeted it once. Um and it's from right behind his foot, basically, as it goes into the top corner. It's um it's it's so strange. It, it's like being in an alternate universe, seeing the Radford for goal <laughs> from the other side of the pitch, because you're so used to seeing it from um you know, from over over on the left of the pitch. But, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole – that's the other thing you can see through it as well is, like, you know, fashions and things. You know, it's like you go through the eras of mullets and bubble perms and then you've got all the 70s mavericks like Tony Curry. You know, they've got those those glorious, like, flowing locks and things like that. And um, I would just make one other quick point on it as well. Because of the era that it crosses, I mean, you can feel – um I sorry to, I don't want to have too serious a point on it, but you can feel in it as well this tape, you know, other problems that dogged English football in that era and you know that they weren't that far away. I mean there's a goal by Alan Clark for Leeds against Middlesbrough and as they're showing the replay, you can hear the chant in the background of you're gonna get your fucking heads kicked in. Mm. But very loud, very voluble. Uh, and yeah, actually it's quite quite chilling to hear it, you know, to think, you know, if you're, if you're in one of those stands and you're thinking, oh god, I've got to walk home past these guys. And then there's a, there's a Mark Walters goal for Villa away to Northampton, where as soon as he receives the ball to his feet, uh, a load of really just poisonous booing starts up. You know, we all know why. Mm. Um, But then he cry turns, he slams in the the ball into the uh, far corner. And they go silent, but it is—it's just—it's got those little things in it as well. You know, you can feel the kind of brooding problems that were an undercurrent in English football too.
1: Are you coming in there, Gary? The,
2: there's a couple of points. Yeah, there's a couple of points that that I might want to mention on, on that. You know, because I agree with with everything, and you know, it's uh, beautifully explained. Is that the technology? I think is is 70s as well here and one of the the joys of the Ronnie Radford goal is that a camera operator a cameraman let's face it there was zero possibility of it being a woman then a cameraman is probably on some windy kind of scaffold or something like this and the camera is probably not much different to the ones that Cecil B. DeMille sort of you know recorded the parting of the the Red Sea in 1922 or something like this. But the camera follows the flight of the ball absolutely perfectly, and it's a brilliant use of what was quite difficult technology uh, and we, we're so used to the technology, the, the, the cameras being so perfect these days and the specialist camera operators and, and everything. But it, it it was a big part of the Radford goal was the tracking of the ball from foot to, to bulging net. Um, and other things that were, were very 70s, My a lot of my memory to the 70s is that it always seemed to be dark. There was never enough light now, some of this was structural because, you know, there, there were the, the kind of three-day week and the blackouts. And I remember was sitting around with candles and things like this in 1974, I think it was. Uh, maybe it was 73. But everywhere you went, it was too bloody dark. And it was, I think, partly a kind of Calvinistic thing that that English people always have, where, where why would you have a 100-watt bulb when you can have a 60-watt bulb? And the other was because I think people just didn't want to put 10p in the meter, um, which we had at home, and the lights would all go off, and somebody would say, have you got 10p? Two bob it was at first, and then it became 10p, to put it in the meter. And some of these floodlights that are, are so called illuminating these matches as so weak and you think look if you've got floodlights just get another six or seven and make us able to see the bloody thing but it was all part of that 70s sort of and it was as much amongst working class people as it was amongst people who were higher up the the social spectrum it was it was all you're not really allowed to enjoy yourself you know The, the kind of 60s are over now not allowed to enjoy yourself. This is good for you. Peer into the dark, and you know when the eighties come along, and you have that awful kind of brightness um, of kind of pop videos. You know that the Jacksons doing. Can you feel it where they're throwing the gold down there? Um, it it was just brighter, and these days, I never go into a room without turning the light on, and I never turn a, a light on half when I can turn it full on, and I think that was growing up in the 70s, and I think it was partly watching matches uh, in the 70s in this watery, half-dull light, like we're looking into a kind of Monet painting when he was half-blind, so that that's also I think resonates for me with uh, with this uh, tape.
1: Well I just to go back to the Radford point, when I lived in Cardiff it's to drive up north, we used to go the route through Hereford, it's like the worst journey in the world. But Hereford's Edgar Street, Hereford's ground is right on right on the main, sixty eight forty nine. And every time you drive past you think, Oh, that goal was scored in there. Yeah. I know yeah. and they're completely non-league now. I think the council own the ground now in that typical way that happens with non-league football now. But uh, but yeah, it's it, it, you talk about cultural imprint. You know um, that yeah. point you making. I about, once had I
2: just I just yeah, yeah, say to you, I once had a drink with Dave Radford, who is Ronnie Radford's son. And instead of saying "Are you Ronnie Radford's son?" I just looked at him and I just put my arms in the air like this, and of course <laughs> he knew. He said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah."
1: You must get that a lot, must he? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that point, you, we just start to talk about are the goals great or not. I do think there are some, like you, you're right, Mike, there are some odd choices, I think probably because of the reasons you outlined. But your point, Gary, is a good one. I think a lot's made about the imperfect pitches and I'm being kind, aren't we? You know, but actually what it does lead to and you notice when you watch this all again is a genuinely imperfect roll of the ball, which you don't see now. You know, it seems odd to see how hard some players have to work on some of these goals to keep the ball moving because the ground is probably because of the weight of the ball as well as you mentioned Gary but actually yeah they are working with a set of tools that are completely different to now aren't they
2: yeah Uh, Yeah, particularly oh go on go on mate
0: I was just going to say I mean also I mean the game the game's evolved as well I mean I'm not not saying it's necessarily better than it was then but it's just I mean there are different I don't know ways of playing now and you know what, what might impress you more in in a goal you know, in the 1970s or 80s would be, you know, different to now. I mean, there are still things that are kind of uh, timeless, I think, you know, like screamers from 30 30 yards and things like that. But in in this generation, I think because you saw so many crosses going into the box, you know, a perfectly timed cross and run and bullet header, you know, just does look incredibly um, impressive, I think. But, um, yeah, I mean, the the game has changed. I mean, the BBC also put out around this time. I think I don't. You might have had this a um, One hundred and one great tries. Yes, which was lots another, of tries.
1: That is for rugby. What this is for football. Everyone had yeah. it. Yeah, and everyone talks so, about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's like you know from the the Five Nations as it was then, from the seventies and eighties, all those great. You know. Welsh players in the seventies, particularly you know, Barry John and all this, but you look at some of those tries early on, and you know, you, you know the way rugby's changed. We really, in the way that you know forwards are a lot better at handling the ball now. If you think and people like have
1: rose-tinted spectacles about old football, you want to tie it <laughs> rugby because old rugby <laughs> is invariably mostly terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it's it's unwatchable. Some of it, anyway. Oh, the
2: guy notes but me. but the but the point about pitches, and this is one of the. Things that I can bang on too much about, so I'll make it quite quickly. Is that I really do think a sea change in English football, possibly British football, but definitely English football, came, and we're only just seeing it now with the likes of Mason Mount and Phil Foden, came when 3G pitches became the norm. So kids growing up and Kids of the age of of Mount and Foden and there's a few others don't know anything other than 3G pitches. They don't know what it's like to play as Pat Nevin was playing on uh, growing up in Glasgow on kind of uh, ash pitches. Uh, I can remember playing football on ash pitches as well in Liverpool. They don't know what it's like to play on a mud bath. They don't know what it's like to play on a frozen pitch. All they've ever known are these perfect 3G pitches and I think that's led to an enormous improvement in the technical ability at the top end of, of English football um, because they, they've they been able to practice these skills uh, from the time or walk, and you just couldn't do that. You couldn't do that even a generation or two ago because you had to play on on dreadful, hopeless pitches. Now you don't.
1: We've... Um... We've selected a couple of goals each, which we're going to go through. Was there any ones that that, that we we can talk about, the two we have selected? Is there any that were very close to getting into your two, Gary, that you've quickly that you've left out? I'll come to Mike after you Well,
2: well Obviously all the Everton ones, but um, <laughs> Everton or not, one of one or two listeners think there's a bit too much Everton in these uh <laughs> dorbers, so I, I steered away from that. I, I literally could have picked any because it's There's so many goals that are good. There's so many goals that are in between. There's one or two that are a bit um, naff, but they're all worth talking about, so I could have picked any.
1: Mike?
0: Oh, well, where do you start, Brian? <laughs> um, I mean... One, one I've always liked on here, but I didn't pick because I I, I didn't want to do um, double Ray Kennedy. You know, if we're doing six goals, but it's it's Ray Kennedy's other goal on this tape. Um, you know, Gary's going to talk about one in a bit, but he was just such a classy player, Ray Kennedy, and it's mm-hmm. um, it's a beautiful goal. But I mean, he scores a a goal that is the equal of the one I'm thinking of there, which we're going to come to in a bit.
1: I was very, very close to including in my two, Terry Conroy's goal for Stoke against Arsenal in 1970. Um, it's a, it's a it's just a wonderful one-two. He hits it the outside of his boot and then t- one touch back to him and he absolutely hammers it from, from... And what I love about watching this in the internet age is that I oh, went, well, I don't really remember Terry Conroy. Let's go and find out about Terry Conroy. Of course, hmm. he's got a very detailed history on the internet now. Grew up in the, the youngest of a massive family in in one of the worst parts of central Dublin, you know, came over from, he played for Glen Torren, I think, in the Irish League before, and so again, it's, it opens up loads of other doors. A well, great goal, though. One of the, It's early in the uh, in the tape if anyone's want to watch it, wants to watch it. Mm. So we're going to go in chronological order with the goals. We we just pick ones we liked and they kind of go in chronological order. My, um means I'm first, because I picked the first goal that I picked, which is probably one of my favourite goals of all time. I think maybe the combination of goal and commentary yeah. which is John Hughes for Crystal Palace in 1970, I think. He was a Lisbon 71. Lion John Hughes, 71. Lisbon Lion John Hughes, did you know? But didn't play in that yeah, game. Got, got yeah, a medal he missed
0: though. the final. He was injured, wasn't
1: he? Yeah, got yeah. a medal though. Yeah, but then ended up at Palace. But big John Hughes. Barry Davis comment. Well, let's talk about the goal. He picks it up. He moves into sort of the middle of the park, about 20 yards out, and absolutely hammers it one straight in. It's kind of made by Barry Davis's commentary, really. And one thing that's consistent about get Barry Davis's commentary all the way through the seventies is his excitable "Oh, what a goal!" I'm not going to try and do it. But it, everything is, and, it, and it's what you notice when it moves into the eighties that he stops doing it. Whether so he's like he's been given notes or something to stop doing it, or whether he just realised he's been a bit too overexcited. But it starts off with "Oh, what a goal!" sort of thing, really loud. Hughes wants to set himself up and
0: down. Oh!
2: moving forward, breathing the chance, and giving it the hammer.
1: And then there's the brilliant, um, the sort of, uh, the triplet of Big John Hughes, moving forward, breathing the chance, and giving it the hammer. That's a great comment, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) And you think that'd be ad-libbed, won't it? It's it's incredible. Sorry, Michael.
0: Well, that's, that's, um, I think you make a good point about Barry's, kind of commentaries where he says, oh, what a goal. It's like, you know, it's like Brian Moore shouting, it's it, it's in there. He shouts that on so many goals on ITV that he commentates on. And I think now, well, one of the bugbears I have about commentary now is the kind of pre-scripted lines where they've obviously been jotted down the night before, thinking, oh, if he scores in the last minute, I'll say this, or I'll do this really clever, clever metaphor that's built up around it. Whereas I just, I prefer the kind of natural reaction, you know, where they scream and when they lose it, there's a Malcolm McDonald goal on this tape where it's a big dip in volley and Barry just loses it completely and just screams, "Oh, what a goal!" Yeah, <laughs> and um, I, th- I think I just prefer that. It just feels more, more real. Really, I and don't need to hear a you know a kind of you know and pre-drafted yet, season. some of the
1: stuff he adlibs. Is it, is it, which Tottenham goal is it where after it scores and it the close of I Can't remember what year it is. And he says, it zooms in on the player and he goes, look at what it means. You can see what it means. And he goes, and you can hear what it means because the crowd are, and you think that's, that's absolutely spectacular. And obviously that couldn't have been scripted,
0: you know. The thing about um, John Hughes, or big John Hughes, as we should call call him, um, is that, so when I first would have seen this, obviously I didn't know anything about him because, you know, it was before my era and I couldn't Mm. research him. So, from where he picks the ball up, which is about 35, 40 yards out, and moves forward a bit, I just assumed he was a centre half who just got like, ambled forward <laughs> and just fan- just fancied a lash at goal. But it's, he's actually a, a left winger and a, or, or was a striker as well at Celtic. And but about he's, seventeen of the, stone, yeah, yeah, because <laughs> of the size of him, I just he just rigs centre half to me, you know, um, and the way he hits it as well, it does look like the centre half who just barrels forward and just puts his foot through it it's an extraordinary hit though and it couldn't go any more in the top corner like the, I don't know who the keeper is on this but he makes a full you know full length dive and attempt to save it and nearly gets to the ball but it's, uh, the replay of it's great actually you see just you know it curl into the top corner it's a stunning goal apparently it was runner-up in the
2: 71-72 goal of the season
1: who won it? I bet it's somebody from Tottenham, Gary. Somebody from Tottenham
0: won the goal of the season. Yeah, Steve right? Perryman
2: <laughs> probably, Gary. <would> <laughs> I, 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 I wonder if it was Ronnie Radford. Was, it, was that the year of well Ronnie Radford? Was it, oh, no it was 74, was it oh Radford? Oh, 72 no? was Radford. Oh, oh, oh. oh, oh. it might have been, yeah. 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 The, um, yeah. Speaking of Steve Perryman, I, I, one of the actually, things, just before
0: just for we jump off on. that,
1: one of the things I found myself watching this video again was going, God, his career really started that early. Steve Perryman's one of them. He's got a really early goal in the early 70s. And that Mark Walters one you referred to, Mike, I was like, "Geez, he was playing in 82, 84, whatever it was. Yeah. Sorry, Gary.
2: Yeah, I was going to say one of the things about the goal is that even though it's as clean a strike as you'll ever get, the ball is on the way down when it goes in the in the net. It goes right in the top corner but these days if you hit the ball like that it's going way over the bar but the weight of the <laughs> ball is already yeah. curving it back down to earth and i think it adds it adds to the goal because it's got a kind of heft about it it's like when you when you pick something up and it's in your hand and it's balanced and you you think well that that you know that's that's good but I, I can't actually think of anything that's the, the case because I was never one for cricket bats. But, you know, sometimes like a table tennis bat, if you've ever picked up a table tennis bat at Pontin's, you think, what the hell's this? And you <laughs> go into a sports shop and there's one for 30 quid. You think, 30 quid for a table tennis bat? You pick it up and you think, oh, actually, you yeah, know. <laughs> <laughs> and this, this ball so that of has that kind of heft you can see you can see it in its trajectory and we don't i'd suggest we don't often see that kind of trajectory these days we get the the sort of knuckleball type um as yeah, i need, say Cristiano if you do it be deliberate yeah and it goes up and it dips down but this is just arcing down like a, a discus or something or, or but it's it's got heft about it so even even the flight of the ball is saying 1971 to me
1: So that's Big John Hughes of Crystal Palace. It's 8 minutes 32 on the YouTube video if you want to have a look at it. It's well worth having a look at it. So moving on then, next we've got your first selection, Mike.
0: Yeah, so this is is Mick Walsh uh, scoring a winner for Blackpool in a game against Sunderland in 1975 and this this was actually goal of the season um, I've just done some quick research online thanks to the magic of the internet and it was <laughs> Ronnie Radford that won in uh, 71 72 ah. but uh, the Mick Walsh goal here I mean oh, I love this so much I mean so it's, it's too, to add a bit of context to it it's two all and I think it's just a couple of minutes to go there's a long ball out of defence uh, Mick Walsh who's only 20 years old at this point Chests it down uh, and kind of runs to the kind of right edge of the area. And ba- Barry Davis is, again, the commentator. Um, and Barry starts, starts list- listing what his options are. <laughs> so he says, oh, Davis is on the far side. Ainsgo go coming square. That's the ball. And as he's saying that, Walsh kind of turns back on himself. Pirouettes 360, gets the ball onto his left foot and just lashes a shot into the far corner of the goal, past Jimmy Montgomery, the great hero of the 1973 FA Cup final. And it wins the match 3-2 for Blackpool. And it's you can hear in the crowd noise um, just how massive a goal it is, really. And I'll get onto why in a minute. And there's a great shot of Mick Walsh. He's absolutely caked in mud, as everyone was in the 70s. Yeah. And he's being held up into the air. He's got his arms out in this kind of... Uh, messianic pose. So this game, it's actually a second division game. Um so kids, uh what <laughs> Match of the Day used to do in the 70s was that they they would show games from other divisions, you know, if they if they thought they were big enough and thought they were worthwhile enough showing. And it says it says a lot about how Match of the Day's changed, I think, in terms of running orders and you know target demographics that they they don't do things like that anymore. But they did then. So um Sunderland were pushing for promotion to back to the first division. And Blackpool were in sixth place trying to catch them. And Blackpool had actually lost a two-goal lead in this game, which is why you get this big kind of cathartic reaction at the end because they thought they were going to win. Then they had it taken away from them. And then this young lad, their young striker, just scored this worldy of a goal uh to win the match. And it's... uh it's, 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 it's like a distillation of everything I love about football, really. And, you know, the the way a match can build to that um, like really climactic moment. We had quite a long debate about this with uh, Gary Scott and I on the last, uh, last podcast. But th- these are the kind of payoffs you get, you know, for sticking with seasons and sticking with games. As you see, you can see glorious, you know, decisive moments like this. And... Uh, barry again just goes completely it's <laughs> yeah. like oh what a
1: what a goal to decide it surely and um, it's a bit before that's a good try <laughs>
0: yeah
2: <laughs> well taken by walsh davis is on the far side ainsco coming square that's the ball that's a good try everybody.
0: That's a good try, yeah. And he's he's saying that while the ball's in the air, because actually the <laughs> yes. shot takes a few seconds to hit the net as well. So it's um, yeah. So it's, it's like Barry's building up the suspense while the shot's in the air. It's uh, it's a fantastic bit of uh bit of commentary. It really is, and uh, yeah. So that's my first selection. Yeah, Mick Walsh.
1: Okay, uh, we're going chronologically, so we're we'll jumping. So we will get to go in a sec, but next one is one I picked, uh, which is.
2: Which... Well, can, can I just say a little bit about the Mickey? Walls oh, sorry, Gary. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course, you can. Yeah. Um, you'll never get. You'll the, never the, guess who he signed
0: for. He was a. He
2: was a. a, a he was signed to think for significant money in those days. I think three hundred and twenty thousand mm. pounds or something, and he was. You know, he was an up and coming uh, player. Uh, he went to Goodison and he was, uh, I'm afraid, a flop and uh, known as the non scoring centre forward because I think he scored one goal in two. Was he a reverse Jeffers, goals, Gary? Scored a couple of. <laughs> well, he, he, he was. He was the, uh, the, the non Fox in the box. Um, so it, it didn't really work out for him uh, at Goodison. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But about the actual goal itself. Um, if you look at the goal there, and you know, Mike, you've you've looked at this more than I have, although I'd say I do remember watching this on Match of the Day, uh as a kind of twelve year old or whatever. Um he hits it from almost exactly the same place that Justin Fashion, scores the goal of the season some years later. And the ball yeah. follows a very similar trajectory, that, yeah. although you know, Fashionu was hitting a, a, a more of a kind of bouncing ball. It wasn't a volley, although some people call it a volley. But the ball wasn't sort of on the pitch or on the grass when he hit it. But um, it's and the cameras from the same sort of angle. It has a lot of parallels with uh, with Fashionu's, uh goal. Um, the the last point I make is I also did a, a tiny bit of uh, research. I.e., looked at the Wikipedia page for uh, Mickey Walsh. And um, he played six years for Porto in Portugal, which must have been a very rare thing for a British player to do in the early 80s, and played in the UEFA Cup final, got a loser's medal as they lost in in 83-84 against Juventus, I think. And I've never heard when people have rattled off the sort of British players who've who've played in Europe. You, you know, you get Jimmy Greaves and you get John Charles and you get Dennis Law, and then there's a kind of hiatus, and then people jump to kind of uh, uh, Glen Hoddle and Chris Waddle and stuff like that. I've never heard of Mickey Walsh being being building a career playing in in Portugal in the successful one to booth. You'd have heard
1: well, about if you played for Tottenham, Gary. Let me
0: tell you, the media darling. <laughs> it's like when um, I think it was uh, was it Ian Hart went to he went to Spain, didn't he? To like Levante or something like that. Yeah, um, that was just like never talked about ever. But um, yeah, also Mick Walsh. He apparently had a spell with Cape Town City um, in 1978. Which, given the era, I'm not sure of the you know the wisdom of that choice. Um, <laughs> At yeah. the um, at the time. So I imagine he doesn't want to talk about that uh, bit of his, um, his career either. But um, yeah, the six years with Porto, that's quite extraordinary, really, because it seemed to do pretty well there. You know, if you look at the kind of sort of games. What goals, years was it at Porto,
1: you know, then? Sells, uh, 80 to 86, I think. That was just after their golden period, was it? That late 70s period of the Portuguese clubs. Or am I getting me some? Was that the late 80s? Oh, okay. Oh, it was the late 80s. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. In between. <laughs> the yeah. wrong period, anyway, whichever way yeah. you slice it. Um, but you're yeah.
2: only ever you're a decade away from a golden generation of Portuguese players. <laughs> that's a <laughs> <So, true. that's laughs> truism that holds for whatever, whatever, wherever you want to point on the calendar.
1: Didn't have Lampard and Gerrard though, did they? Mm hmm right moving on we're back to me now speaking of England we're back to me and my next choice is Kevin Keegan's goal uh, in 1980 versus the Republic of Ireland it's at 37 minutes 40 in the video the Mickey Walsh video, uh, goals at 19 minutes 10 if, you, if you're if keeping up if you're keeping score Keegan's chip um, there's there's a few Keegan in, uh, bits of Keegan in this video I think this is one of his three goals that's in this in this video Kevin
2: Keegan the goal scorer Keegan went for the chip Brilliant goal! Marvellous
1: piece of vision and finishing by the European footballer of the year. Keegan with an appreciation there of where the goalkeeper was. It's on
2: his left side. He chips. Healy is off his line. And that's 2-0 to England. Keegan has got them both. The first was simple. The second was superb.
1: And I really like this one. One, because it was a lovely goal, but actually... Um, what I like about it is, is that you expect him, as I think everybody else did, as he did in his other goals in this as well, because he picks the ball up midway into the island half. It kind of bobbles around a bit, and then he starts moving forward with it towards the sort of left of the D, but still outside the <coughs> outside the area. And you expect him to do what he what he what he did really, which is to keep driving into the area and then have one of those busy fizzing shots. But he actually hits and and because I think Ireland expect him to do that the keeper comes off his line and the defenders all kind of back off a bit and one pushes forward and instead he floats this absolutely wonderful chip with his left foot that just completely diddles the keeper all ends up but it's a lovely goal and a bit of a and I think a bit of a testament to he wasn't just this busy hard working player that is part of his a uh, is part of his legend now
0: well, no, he's a great player. I mean, he's, well, he's he had well, he had what should be one of the most celebrated careers in English football history. I think. I mean, he he's still the only English player that's won back to back Ballon d'Ors. I mean, yeah, he, he, this one was of, a
1: Ballon d'Or year for him, wasn't it? Actually, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And one what, what, one of the you know only English players ever to win it I mean he's got um, he's got five goals on this tape five is it wow yeah god I really have watched this too much <laughs> I? So I know that. but um, yeah so yeah roughly 20% of the gold on here well, that's not right is it oh it is actually yeah um, I really can't do maths on. no you can't uh, no. It's, um, it's actually 5 it's five roughly
2: 5% five five of, of the gold <laughs> 5 of 101 it's not the
0: toughest oh, I, I see what I've done there yeah, okay. yeah <laughs> I, I can see that. what you've done there yeah, yeah. Um right, if i maybe I'll get half a mark if I show my work. <laughs> but uh, but it, it it is a great goal. I love the way it starts as well, 'cause it is it's a kind of bouncing ball and he lets mm. it just trickle down off the top of his knees rather than, you know, uh, to to beat a man, which is what well, looked quite unique. And then he's got all the sort of Irish players circling in on him and he um it's kind of like the goal I'm gonna pick uh uh a little bit later on for my next one, but this kind of left-footed chip, it's that element of surprise to it, I think, because I, mm. I think he's right-footed Keegan. So you don't expect him to delicately caress a chip over the um, the goalkeeper from there. And I, I think with Keegan as well, because he has a rather scant international career. You know, he only got 27 minutes for England at a World Cup. And um, his defence didn't
1: qualify for any of them, did they? In his pomp. No, but it, it 78, was seventy-eight. You know that just yeah. have to, well on his defense. It was. I think that's probably why his, his England career is not remembered as fondly because I don't think anybody's is from that period, are they? Because there just there was no major tournament really to speak of. No, it?
0: no. But I mean, if you if you look at the way weigh his club, club career into what he did, I mean, his club career is just yes yeah, exceptional yeah, right, by, as an English like, career. Yeah, as opposed to, to England career. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I, I think yeah. with England, I mean, it, it wasn't through any any fault of Keegan or any lack of you know trying on keegan's behalf that you know england weren't um weren't pulling up trees in that era, but I think that that's maybe one reason I, I really don't think he gets the credit he deserves as a player keegan I think largely because as a as just as a person his his reputation has been superseded by what he's done as a manager mm. that seems to have overtaken everything he's done as a player, and I do think people this, forget what a great player he was
2: but there's there's a bit of of two sides of of Keegan in this clip, there because right at the start of the of the clip, he's he's five foot eight is he if that and the ball is in the air in the middle of the field and he leaps up exactly as you would expect a Labrador where a Labrador given. Uh, an England shirt and told to go out there and and play football for England leaps in the air and the poodle perm uh, hits the ball well bounces off his head and then it, it falls to him and it's a bit of either luck or good control you can take it either way but it's that enthusiasm that that kind of I'm gonna do it because I'm Kevin Keegan, and because that's what I do, it's a, it's a nothing ball that he takes, and then he gets the the next ball, and then you get the other side of Keegan driving the ball, very positive, and a tremendous finish that sort of reminds me of um, of was it Totty who had that as a, a party piece where he would um, hit the ball, sort of dink the the keeper. Um, from kind of edge of the box but you get sort of both sides of of Keegan in that in that goal there and um, I think it's David O'Leary I think he's running away from uh, there but um, somehow in my mind anyway I've never been able to separate those those things out that uh, that Labrador-like enthusiasm Uh, with the the poodle perm and the eyes and and all of that that's part of Keegan and the tremendous player he was and I do think that had he been more I don't know louche more cool more languid any of those kind of adjectives he would be more appreciated as a player but because he was always trying really really hard it made people think well he can't be that good but of course when he went to Hamburg and on the continent, they didn't necessarily have that that picture of Keegan, they just saw him as a tremendous all-action player who could do pretty much everything on a pitch as well as raising the standard of the players around him, so it's no surprise that he's never really I don't think, he, as we've we've said, because we've done Keegan before, I don't think he's ever really appreciated as much in this country as he should be and I don't think he ever appears. Would he? Would he appear on a list of twenty greatest England players? I doubt he. he I don't think would he would do.
1: now, but that's because people are stupid now. So. Well,
2: well, yeah. I mean, there's always the kind of recency bias, but I doubt whether he he did at any point um, because I don't think what he brings to the game uh, is fully appreciated, and perhaps it should be. Um, but it's the two sides of the of. Keegan's footballing persona are in that goal.
1: You're, this, this, Yeah, it's a wonderful goal. You mentioned O'Leary there, as reminded me of the Liverpool goal against Arsenal. I'm remembering this, right? Adam, Mike. I'm, I'm just referring to Mike, when Liverpool string a Liverpool sequence together in the 80s and it, and it ends up with O'Leary somehow trying to cover three players. Is that that? Oh, one? Okay. Um, i probably misremembered, but it doesn't matter. There's a, point, there's a there's definitely a goal with David O'Leary, O'Leary is the only defender left behind while he's just being like passed around. It's, it's it's heartbreaking for him, really. But yeah, great goal, the Keegan goal. Uh, right then, moving on. Gary, this is your first chance to have a pick.
2: Yeah, well, I, I thought uh, better not have uh, Everton and um, Trevor Stevens' goal against Sunderland or any of those. So I thought, well, if I'm... D- Having that kind of self denial, I better go to the other end of the spectrum and really bring out the sackcloth and ashes and pick a <laughs> Liverpool goal. And um, Liverpool did score some some great goals. I mean, they're they're known for having a parsimonious defence and a, a fantastic offside trap, and they could never play that way today. I mean, Liverpool would never play with a high line these days, would they? Um, but uh, but they did. They did back then, but they they also scored some fantastic goals. And they had, as I think uh, Mike has uh, alluded to, they had an absolute Rolls Royce of a player in Ray Kennedy, uh, a, a player who was never hurried. Um, he started off at Arsenal very much as a, a second, uh, one of a, a pair of strikers with John Radford, and then he went to to Liverpool, and as Liverpool often did in those days, and they they. They did it more frequently, I think, than any team has done, I think, before or since. They they looked at a player and said, you know, you think you're a forward, but actually you're a midfielder, and they converted him into a a, a midfielder as a kind of playmaker. He was a more advanced midfielder, um, but he was he he wasn't quite as stately, shall we say, as as Jan Molby, but he had something of of Molby's ability on the ball and something of of Molby's ability to be playing the game seemingly at 33 when everybody else was at 45 and indeed Keegan was at 78 um, but this goal sort of captures some of it so I think it's it's Terry Mack who hits a 40 yard ball and then Dal Gleeshi was the best chest control man I'd seen until probably until the likes of Fellaini made it made it sort of a, a, a signature part of his game I'm Terry McDermott Oh, didn't he find Dalglish so well? That was 40 yards, that ball. Johnson played back to Ray Kennedy. Brilliant! That was football at its very best. The ball played through by McDermott over 40 yards to find Dalglish. Dalglish played it. It was played then back to Ray Kennedy and put in the back of the net with total authority. But Dalglish would kill any ball on his chest, and he he always took the ball on the half turn, he's on the half turn here, even though it's on his chest, and he he gets the ball, it it dies in front of him, and then he fizzes a pass into David Johnson, and David Johnson was not the most technically gifted uh, player, Uh, Liverpool looked for an improvement and, and found it, but having said that, he was very successful at Ipswich, he was successful at Liverpool, I think in two spells, and successful at Everton, but Dalglish fizzes the ball into him, and Johnson kind of half lays it off and half sort of reacts to the ball. And Kennedy is running in behind one of four players on the edge of the uh, of the box because Liverpool were certainly part of the uh, the approach which I always favour. Uh, which leads are doing very well with at the moment. If you want to score goals, most of them are in the box. So if you want to score goals, get players in the box. And they would do that. But having said that, Kennedy's on the way into the box, and he just meets it with the most perfect of volleys and slams it into the goal. And then there's almost no reaction after, as if to say, well, you know, that's what we do. And it was that sense in 1980 that Liverpool were playing on a on a different plane to most other English clubs. They were a, a European power, and whilst they didn't always win everything in in the league, it's ju- it's a goal that smacks of Liverpool's well founded arrogance there. Yet he takes one touch and then half volleys it into the roof of the net, and then just walks away, um, taking congratulations from the uh, players, saying, "Well, you know." What do you expect me to do? It's a it's a delightful goal. Any player who scored that today would be completely pleased about it. It would win goal of the month um, in any month of the intervening forty years. What a goal!
1: Yeah, I, do, I like I do like a deep run, uh, which is which is that there's a, the Gemmel's one is a brilliant uh, on this video where he plays the first pass. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then you see his little bald head flash across the bottom of the screen, and he yeah. picks up the final pass. It's brilliant. And there's an element of that kind of late arrival, like you said, guy with Kennedy, isn't there? But it is a uh, it's a it's a wonderful goal.
2: Yeah, well, it was Terry McDermott was more likely late run because McDermott full tilt, but somehow Kennedy just arrived there. He would float over the ground at no great pace, but that footballing intelligence, along with the almost. Um, and know he said psychic, psychopathic. Psychic! That's the what I'm looking for. <laughs> mm-hmm. Almost psychic way that Dalgleish would both find space and then find uh, a fellow player, another red shirt. In this case, it's a white shirt because they're in their change strip at Bristol City uh, at Ashton Gate there. But um, it, it, that ability to find space, and he would find that space, and then technically perfect first touch, and then an absolute lash past the, the keeper. Um just a brilliant goal.
0: That's what one thing I would say about this tape. Actually, is that
2: the years it covers, sixty nine to eighty
0: seven. I mean, that goes right across you know, Liverpool's imper- imperial phase in English football. So it'd be very easy, I think, to stockpile this tape with with Liverpool goals. You know, maybe forty of them. But it's very even handed, actually. You know, in terms of uh, the spread of. Clubs and uh, players it covers. I think. I mean, I won't work out a percentage after my last. Uh, effort, but, uh, <laughs> it's it's uh, it, it is um it it is quite uh quite noticeably well spread out. I think in terms of uh in terms of what it covers. And yeah, uh, yeah, Ray Kennedy's got two on this tape. I referenced one earlier, uh, which is a really classy goal as well, where he just takes a pass from McDermott in his stride goes between two defenders round the goalkeeper and just taps it in. What a great player. And it's um yeah, yeah it's just it's just really sad what happened to him afterwards as well. Um, mm. you know, he, he got early onset Parkinson's disease, didn't he, in his early or early to mid thirties, I think. And um yeah, while he was still stopped, playing, I think. While he's he was still playing, but I think I yeah. think not yet diagnosed while he kind of yeah. changed well, clubs and things like that. Yeah. And um as a result really, I mean you don't Obviously, he's not you know he's not visible on the punditry circuit in the way that you know yeah, Alan like Kennedy Zunis is, and, for example. And, yeah, and, and other people are, and um, yeah, but I mean he's he's incredibly well revered by Liverpool fans. I know that. I mean, I think there yes. a poll years ago about I think it was called "A Hundred Players Who Shook the Cup," and you know Kennedy was um, really high up in that. I think he was like in the top twenty, maybe. But uh, yeah, fantastic player. I've
1: just remembered the goal that when that when David O'Leary is stranded, it's Kenny Dalglish in nineteen eighty three, when Michael Robinson backheels it to Kenny Dalglish. Yes, wild. Yeah. Oh, oh at, yes, wild. O'Leary's all at uh, all at sea. Um, <laughs> Michael Robinson, of course, went on to become Spain's premier foot, the Deslinum of Spain in the nineties yeah. and early two thousand. He's passed away now, cancer. Yeah, yes, he rest his soul. Yeah, El despoes which he. I find you must, you must love the idea, Gary, of a, a bloke speaking Spanish in a Scouse accent becoming <laughs> one of the biggest stars of Spanish
2: telly. Well, I, I remember I first read of it in When Saturday Comes, and I kind of, because even kind of mid-90s, the country, never mind... The, the media was parochial, so you 'd never see why would you ever see Michael Robinson on spanish television you know the only <laughs> the only television we ever got was uh, was um Antoine and um Jean Paul Gaultier doing uh doing uh, what, what was this show?
0: Rap oh, Rapido. Euro y-
2: y- oh, trash Yeah, that was the only that was the only That's I an even deeper tally, yeah. cut
1: rapido, Mike. That's a <laughs> <Yeah>. great that's <laughs> yeah. a great dig yeah. yeah. that.
2: Ra- rapido was uh, Rapido <laughs> was relatively serious and, and was, was quite good uh before they went down the Euro trash. So you never saw European telly, and I remember reading in When Saturday Comes that, that not only did Michael Robinson have his own show, but he wasn't just the kind of cult presenter, you know, who was this, this bloke speaking bad Spanish, but he was actually a big star of of, of Spanish uh, television. Um, then we, we later kind of saw these things, and I think there was a kind of football focus or something, and... And that kind of thing, where they had a, a report on on him, but it was an extraordinary, it was an extraordinary career, um, and you know, fair play to him. He 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 reinvented himself, and and I think he he left us at a a, a very early age. Um, but uh, but what a life he was with us.
0: Well, he went to um, he went to Osasuna to finish his career, I think, didn't he? So a very Mick Walsh esque, I think. Um, you know, a kind of unheralded um period overseas by a but a slightly less a glam- glamorous
1: club though <laughs> yes <laughs>
0: <The> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. uh right, so that was uh, ray kennedy's goal we'll stick with Gary as we move we're obviously into the eighties now as we move a bit further into the eighties Gary
2: yes, we do, and I was speaking to my brother uh earlier today and I said oh i 'm doing a and dorm I were picking goals, and I said sort of, you know, I'm doing one of the Ray Kennedy goals and we talked a little bit about Ray Kennedy and I said, Oh, uh the other one, uh, Johnny Method and he said, Oh yeah, yeah, uh, for, uh West Ham, wasn't it? I said, yeah, yeah. Over Phil Parks' head, I think. And he said uh, and I and I said yeah. So unprompted, my, my brother could sort of more or less tell me the the exact detail of, of Johnny Method's uh, goal, which I think gives it its kind of iconic status. And it is an iconic goal, and it's an iconic goal for lots of different reasons. Again, we've got the murky darkness of uh, of a, a night game at the beginning of April, you know why they can't have the bloody floodlights turned on maybe that played a a part in the goal but he's taken a free kick it's 30 yards out and unlike some 30 yards which are more like 25 this really is 30 yards because it's a it's a, a good eight yards maybe more than that 10 if you're looking at the wall from the uh penalty boxes semicircle so if it's if it's uh what's the 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 penalty spot that's uh, that's 12 yards away isn't it then there's 10 yards for that 22 yards and then another 10 so it's 32 yards out um, mike can you check my maths there <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he's another he's a kind of medium pace bowler's run up away he's another 10 yards away so he's closer to the the halfway line than he is to the ball and you know he's a he's a tall dutch player and he's got this bald head and and who doesn't look doesn't love a, a footballer with a bald head you've already mentioned once or twice there the, the the bald head of a little archie uh, all the way up from the back as i recall <laughs> and um so he there's johnny method and you think he's going to have a real go at this and then you think no he's not he's dutch this is a training ground move he's going to play a du- couple fake here, and it's going to end up being half volleyed in at the far post after sort of a Jesper Olsen and Johan Cruyff-like exchange of passes in the past. But no, he doesn't disappoint. He lines up the shot. Looks
1: as though Johnny Method might try to strike this one. It's a long way out. But he's scored three kicks from that sort of position in the past. The big Dutch international gives himself a long run. Oh, and didn't he drive it well? Straight in, it seemed to go above Phil Parks' head and in under the post. What an amazing
2: free kick by the Dutchman! That flew into the roof of the net and it went straight above Phil Parks. He takes, takes some more steps back, he's going even further back. Frank McAvenny, uh, with his hands over the crown jewels, there. And I think they've, they've seen some work in their time and he just lashes it and it travels up. The whole way. He must have hit the exact middle of the ball because there is no spin, no perturbation, none of that on the ball. It just rises like a, a kind of, um, what do they call them in school? A set square or something like that, wasn't it? Where you had a, an edge on a right angle triangle. It is the edge of that right angle triangle. And you're watching it and you're thinking, well, Parks is just going to sort of tip this over the bar. But to his credit, Phil Parks sees immortality. Uh, staring him in the face. And for some reason, he doesn't get his hands uh, to it. And it really, let's be honest, it really should be a bit of a regulation tip over the bar. But <laughs> it's going so fast, it probably might be wobbling a little bit in the air, but who cares? Because the ball gets lashed into the net. And then because Johnny Method is so far out when he hit it, the camera picks him out celebrating, and for two or three glorious seconds, he's on his own because all of his Forest teammates have got to run from the box to get back to him. And he's doing this kind of multiple shearer with a finger in the air, the arm going over and over and over again, uh, showing the force with which he hit it. So it's just such an iconic goal. The setup, the run up, the extraordinary trajectory of the ball, which has never been done, I think, before or since, and then the celebration at the end of it, and poor old Phil Parks picking the ball out of the net. But I'll tell you what, Phil, my brother didn't need to think too hard before he came up with your (laughs) name because you are part of history.
1: I think this is second goal in quick quick succession that Parks let's in in this uh, as well which is a shame because he was a genuinely decent goalkeeper for Park. part and an
2: uh, advertiser of men's hairspray
1: yeah I was, um, mm-hmm. I, you do wonder when it would have stopped going up if it hadn't been caught in a net <laughs> don't you that yeah. shot it's one of them if it had hit somebody's face in the crowd behind you, you should have to think what it had done to them it would have been hit so hard the other thing as well is the run up it's, inc- it's so ramrod straight Mm-hmm <laughs> How did you know he runs as in a dead straight? You know, the, the ball continues on on the same t- line that he's run up to the ball with. It's dead straight and almost like, is it? It's not like you said, Gary. It's, it's like a toe bunger that's been the best hit one you've ever seen, but mm-hmm. obviously it's not because he's Dutch. So he's obviously hit it with some wonderful yeah. technique. But yeah, sorry, Mike. Go on.
0: Oh, I was just gonna say it reminded me of we were talking about um old rugby before, like the way people used to take conversions. <laughs> well they used to just run up and toe bug it in a
2: straight Yeah,
0: you know, they would stand oh, was, in a straight line. Alan, the...
2: it, yeah, it was Alan Martin, wasn't it? The Dutch uh, the Dutch, the Welsh lock, he used to do that, didn't he? just welly it from the halfway line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're but absolutely right, Mike.
0: Uh, the one the the one thing it really reminded me of actually, was um I don't know if you read Roy of the Rovers and stuff at the time. Probably not at your age, Gary. No, I didn't. The kids thing. But um, Hotshot Hamish, who is like this Highland League football with a booming strike. And he would hit these straight, you know, gradually rising shots that would burst the back of the net and things like that. It reminds me of one of those kind (laughs) of... It's got a comic book violence to it, that goal. Um, (laughs) Exactly. and And Phil Parks should really save it but I just yeah it's, it kind of it goes directly above him almost it's in an exact straight line it's right down the centre of the pitch and you know straight in the middle of the goal and um, it's yes it's just a pretty extraordinary goal really also Matt Hod in this with a you know he he, he has got that kind of look of a you know kind of school caretaker I think he's, he reminds me of the guy from Grange Hill whose who's name I can't um, remember now but he's actually 28 years old in this but he you know he looks um you looks a lot older. I think that was a feature of you know living in the early to mid eighties. You know, when, when you were a young man, you looked a lot older than you were just because of the way uh, the way life was then. But um, also, he signed for Forest from Real Madrid, I and mean, I don't know how often that journey's been made um, in, <laughs> in, in history. But it's um, yeah, that's that. What a what a phone call that was! Clough ringing up, um, you know, <laughs> Real Madrid to sign him. Um. But, yeah, one what, what of the most memorable goals. And I just think the, the celebration doubles down on it, I think. I mean, yeah, that's oh, the thing
1: I, yeah. I remembered more than anything. I mean, obviously, I knew it had been a boomer. But what sticks mm. in your head is that celebration. Because he turns and faces his own goal, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, to do it. Is it because his supporters are down that end? I can't quite work it out. But,
0: yes. Yeah, yeah, it was before the days you would pick your family out in the stand, I think. <laughs> I wasn't certainly. It? So think I think so. it
2: probably was back to his own. Uh, his you wouldn't own take fans. your
1: family to the stand in those days, would you? No, no, <laughs> no
2: oh i mean it's just it it is i mean the word iconic is overused but it is the right word for that goal um and it's it's as much of a delight now as it was in 1986 when i was i was what i was a month away from doing my finals uh then so uh, I I was almost certainly watching watching the telly and not, <laughs> and not studying <laughs> my law books. I'm promising you. And uh, what what a goal! Just so pleased the cameras were there to to capture it. Imagine imagine that happening and there not being uh, cameras there to to capture the whole thing. What what, what a delight! And if you, want if,
1: you if you want something even more impressive about Mahod, is the full let's give him his full moniker, shall we? Go on. Johannes Antonius Bernardus Method
2: dear me was, it, like was a he Ro- leading the did he lead the four trekkers up to the high belt <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> or, is, or was it, it sounds like he's like been displaced from being the last Roman emperor to scoring goals <laughs> in the East Midlands you know <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. after that you should have said you know um, 59 AD to you know
2: yes. 82 AD Roman Emperor married his sister and was poisoned by his mother
1: but he's um, <laughs> and then and weirdly since he's retired he's been this kind of incredible journeyman assistant manager all over Europe and the Middle East
2: brilliant stuff such <laughs> tremendous
1: right that brings us to our final goal of the six that we've chosen it's back to you Mike
0: yeah, well, this one's from the uh, future match of the day host. So, um, yeah, this is Gary Lineker against Northern Ireland in, I think, October of 1986. Um, I'll pick this one for kind of personal reasons, really. I mean, I think I've spoken before on here about uh, the 86 World Cup, was where I really kind of properly fell in love with football, I think. And, um we got our video recorder that summer, which I would later go on to play 101 great goals (laughs) on over and over. But on the, on the one tape I was given the one, um, what were they called? E one eighties then, uh, the highlights of the England Northern Ireland game on sports night, they were one of the first things I taped because I've been so transfixed with the world cup in the summer. I was really excited about the prospect of watching England again this October. Um, and you can feel the kind of you know post world cup euphoria around this game i think and it's um at england when it's 3-0 and it's a it's a really great goal from linux so uh, it starts actually with glenn hoddle winning a tackle against two opposition players in mid-field. don't believe you Which, can't possibly <laughs> uh, <laughs> a very a very rare bird indeed so um he cgi gets the ball. cgi yeah. left here
1: england lead 2-0 and glenn hoddle is in there again there goes Lineker. That's a lovely effort and a fine goal. Beautifully taken. And the Beardsley-Lineker combination works again. Glen Hoddle takes marks for winning it in midfield. Peter Beardsley saw the possibilities, but Gary Lineker, holding off McClelland, chipped the goalkeeper magnificently. So
0: it's... He gets the ball to Peter Beardsley, who slides... Um slides so a lovely pass through to Lineker who takes it sort of one touch with his right foot going into the air and he's going away from goal and then he just clips a little left-footed chip over the goalkeeper in off the near post and it was yeah, it was in the immediate aftermath of you know winning the golden boot and moving to Barcelona and you know he would soon score a hat-trick against Real Madrid it was in that kind of period of Lineker's career where it was just the Midas touch I mean Everything he did was coming off basically, and there's there's a nice line of commentary from John Motson where he says, "Oh, the Beardsley Glencar combination works again," and you know you're starting to realise that's going to be a thing. It wasn't just you know something they found but you know by chance at the World Cup and would then dispense with. That would be that would be England up front basically for the next four years. It would be uh, Beardsley and Lineker and arguably the greatest strike partnership England's ever had. I would say maybe. Um, but yeah, fantastic goal and, uh, just, just a really fun memory for me as well. So like, like I watched 101 great goals over and over before I got that, I watched the highlights of this game over and over and over. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know the commentary from this game very well as well. And, uh, I was delighted to see this goal crop up on 101 great goals when I did get that video. It was just, you know, immediate recognition.
1: Again, um, you speak about next four years. It, the shades of the semi-final. It's further out and all that. But the shades of the semi-final mm. goal is they're going away from goal, taking it early on his left foot. And he wasn't
0: left-footed, Lineker, was he? No, no, he was right-footed. That's yeah. a great point, that
1: way, actually about the semi-final goal. Yeah, so it's same semi- And again, uh, opposition wearing green with white shorts as well. So uh, slightly like different standard, you would think. Yeah, but uh, the, but yeah, but it's it. Say slide rule pass, but yeah, it's really, really lovely finish And I suppose there is he never lost that kind of a bit Ian Rush like, that consummate calm, I suppose, that Lineker exuded as soon as he got anywhere near a shooting chance, really. And this was kind of typified of it. And I said and I imagine like you said, Mike, you know, the confidence was riding pretty high at that point when he probably just thought he could just hit anything and it'd probably come off.
0: Yeah, I mean well, it was just it, like it shows- it used- No, after you go, sorry
2: well uh, i was going to say it shows what a technically gifted player he he was because um he is as you say running away from goal is on his wrong foot but his balance is so beautifully maintained despite the fact that he's getting the buffeting from the defender that he's able to get sufficient sort of swivel into his uh, body and enough um uh, control to lift the ball uh past the keeper And, you know, these things don't happen by by chance. Um, There's a lot of practice goes into that. But I come back to a point that I often make about the great players. What separates a great player from merely a very good player is often that balance that just allows them that little bit of extra time and it allows them to do things that lesser players would not be able to do. And Lineker was always a beautifully balanced player. And, um, you know, that led to a few of his goals. But I, I, I was... On a YouTube wormhole or whatever they're called the other day, and I found um, I found him playing the snooker against Mark Lawrence, and, and he, he was getting he got called for a foul by the referee for for touching a, a ball, which I felt was a bit unfair, particularly because his break was on about thirty seven at that point, and it looked like he could he could go on and, and clear the table. And of course, he was an excellent schoolboy cricketer as well, the bastard. <laughs>
0: He can make he can make a century break, Lineker.
2: Yeah, yeah. He's
0: a very very good snooker. He played um that match with Lawrence and was ahead of the eighty six cup final. I think I think they did it for cup final grandstand. Yeah, one of the kind of
2: filler bits beforehand. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's why I was watching it because I was going back to the uh, the that FA Cup final where uh, I think I saw eighty six and eighty nine, but I can't remember anything about it. Obviously obvious reasons. Um, but, uh, people who are good at snooker yeah, I are like think, a different
1: I think... species to me. I don't it's incredible yeah. how people can be good at snooker. It's the most baffling thing.
0: Oh, oh. I'd, I'd, I'd trade in everything to be good at snooker. Yeah. <laughs> I really wasn't,
2: would, I'd love it. Wasn't he, wasn't he... I don't know if it's true or not, but isn't he someone who's made the three centuries? He's got 100 goals in the first division or whatever it is. Mm. He's made a century playing cricket and he's made a century playing snooker. And he's
0: a scratch. He, he's
2: a scratch golfer as well, isn't he? Is he? Yeah. Because Hanson. Alan Hanson was a champion golfer, wasn't he? He was schoolboy champion, I think, of Scotland as a that golfer. That scans
1: as well, doesn't it? That's that, you know, you would. That's not a shock, even though know, I didn't know
2: it. No, I, I did know yeah. it. You know what I mean? <laughs> But there's there's somebody who was very unlikely who was one of, of these as well who was a kind of Archie Gemmel figure although it wasn't Archie Gemmel but it, it was a scuttling midfielder um, who who was also terribly talented about one or, uh, one or two um, other things. Of course, in in other parts of the world, you find out that they've been speed skaters, don't you? Or or, or they've been <laughs> downhill skiers and stuff like that with us it's sort of darts and snooker but you know we'll take it we'll take it
0: yeah i think with clubs now if they, if they sign kids when they you know 10 12 get them in academies and stuff i think it's very much you've got to focus on football isn't it and you know it's to the uh i not just anything right, else you have about... to
1: focus on playing you know right back from the age of fourteen. Yeah. you know
0: because yeah. otherwise yeah. if you don't specialize
1: it's all that stuff isn't it Right, yeah. is that um, anything else? The Zelenika goal, Gary or Mike?
2: No, no, it was just an, a, an absolute delight. But as I think our discussion has shown, we we we've each picked a couple of favourites, but we could easily have picked at least a dozen more each and had equally as much joy in watching them and as much joy in describing them to you and we hope engenders as much joy in yourselves hearing us uh, talk about these goals. And of course you can go and look up 101 Great Goals on on YouTube and delight uh, in the uh, orgy of net busting.
1: Yeah, by all means go and look it up. Just last point from me is, you know you talk about how the games moved on and right at the beginning we were talking about different skill sets. There's that um, Brian Kidd goal against West Ham, right at the beginning, I think it's 1970 or something. That when George Best runs into the area,
2: mm.
1: does like one sort of slightly awkward step over and rolls it horizontally to to kid who scores. And Kenneth Wilson Home says it's frightening what this man can do. Yeah, <laughs> and it's and, it, and looking at it now, it's an absolute regulation lad in the schoolyard could have done it sort of thing. But then obviously it was probably quite a frightening thing that he was doing.
0: Yeah. one um actually one yeah. final point i'll make actually is that on the very final goal on the tape which is clive allen's header that opens the scoring in the 1987 fa cup final that's not even the best headed goal in that game that's I mean, so that bizarre, game, isn't it? it's, yeah it's synonymous with keith keith houchin's diving header now it's um uh, maybe that's just happened over time and it wasn't it wasn't immediately apparent at the time for some reason oh no it was book? that seems it, a bizarre choice
2: because yeah, he plays the bloody
1: Tottenham Mike. that's why. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: the,
2: the, the Houching Goal, I, I, I remember, I watched it in the next room to where I'm sitting now because I was in that box room rather than this uh, somewhat larger uh, be- bedroom. And I was hung over from boozing the night before <laughs> But immediately that Houchin scored that goal, everyone knew it was a goal for the ages. Because how many times do you see someone score a goal when they are horizontal in the air? Yes, there's Robin Van Persie in the uh, World Cup, but the other one was Keith Houchin. And of course you're thinking, who the hell is Keith Houchin? (laughs) But you've just scored in the FA Cup final. So you, sir, are immortal.
1: And on that note, we'll say goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for your support. We'll speak to you all soon. Goodbye.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.